All right, as they're making their way out, uh, we're going to get back into this uh, series this month. I'm looking at some passages of Scripture uh, that are favorite passages for many of you. I I think they're some of the most, uh, what we might call Christological. We get our understanding of who Christ is and what he is all about in these uh, five passages that we will be looking at. And so today, as we continue to look at uh, what it means to find our identity. What we sang about it so powerfully this morning. And, and you're going to see in the text that uh, those songs that we sang were just confessions of the truths of Scripture that we'll be reading this morning. Passion and power, finding your identity in the crucified and resurrected Lord. So find your place this morning to, in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together. And look at these verses, beginning with verse 1. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the worldly age, this worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain, the spirit now working in the disobedient, literally the sons of disobedient there. We to all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and by nature we were children under wrath, as the others were also. If there's any place in your Bible where you should underline two words, it's right here. Everything hinges and everything changes on these two words. Ready? Say them with me. But God. You can do better than that. Ready? But God, who is abundant, rich, in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses, by grace you have been saved. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith. This not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. Father, we thank you for this powerful reminder, this truth that we are to not only understand with our heads, but to embrace with our hearts and to live with our life. Lord, I pray that this day, this Lord's day, that for those who have understood the principles we're going to discuss, that that we would be challenged again to grow deeper in the things of the faith and to be more passionate about living it out in our life. But Lord, for those to whom this scripture has never really taken hold in their lives, Lord, I pray that today your spirit would guide us into truth, that the truth of salvation in Christ alone, the discovery of even our problem this side of heaven would be revealed in a special way and that you would draw us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. As Pastor Ben mentioned earlier, I know a lot of you are struggling just a little bit about, okay, it's, 
we had to spring forward. Now, some of us think of spring forward and fall back. As, as we get older, and I had another birthday this week, as we get older, we begin to kind of fall forward and fall back. And, and so some of you are still kind of struggle with that. And it reminded me of the, um, the man who was not wanting to get out of bed one Sunday morning. You ever had a morning like that? Maybe it's raining like this. And uh, you're just kind of tired. You're kind of ornery. Well, this man just did not want to get out of bed on Sunday morning. And his wife said, honey, you have got to get out of bed. Why? Because we've got to go to church. We're going to be late. Why do we need to go to church? He said, the services are long and boring. And I don't think anybody down there likes me anyway. I'm not going today. Honey, you've got to go. He said, well, give me three good reasons I need to go to church today. And she said, well, it is the Lord's day, and he's worthy of our worship, so you need to get up and go to church. Secondly, you do need to set a good example for our children, so honey, you're going to have to get up, get dressed, and go to church. And finally, honey, you've got to realize you're the pastor, and they're expecting you to be there today. So I don't know if you've ever felt like, man, it's just hard to get up, get moving. I, I wake up, to me... Every Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. To me, every Sunday is like, man, I just can't wait to be with God's people in, in a place of worship, celebrating the truths of God's Word together. What's your motivation? What keeps you going? I pray that during this month it will be in finding your identity in the crucified and resurrected Lord, that this will not just be a sermon series, that it will become a way of life, a way of thinking, something that transforms you inside and out. Now, this morning as we look at this passage, I want us to think in terms of a gospel-centered worldview. A gospel-centered worldview. Now, I didn't say gospel-informed. There are a lot of Christians who have a gospel-informed worldview. Uh, the worldview, the way you see the world, the way you understand uh, wh what impacts any philosophy that you embrace, any purpose of life that you have. What is it, what lens is it through which you see the world? Is it a Scripture-informed, gospel-informed, or is it a Christ-centered biblical-centered worldview this morning. And so I don't want you to just think in terms of, well, the gospel informs. If we're not careful, the gospel will stop. And by the way, it is awesome that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves us from sin and hell. I am so grateful that I'm going to a place called heaven that I'm not headed to a place called hell where I will be eternally separated from Christ. I am so grateful that Jesus saves us from our sin and that he saves us from a place called hell. But so many of us stop right there. You know, Paul said in Philippians, to live is Christ, but to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. Many of us focus on the to die is gain. Man, thank God I'm not going to hell. I've got a home in heaven. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop, and I can't wait to get there. And, and so we sing about the glories of heaven, but we skip past the to live is Christ part. Finding your identity in the crucified, resurrected Lord to say every day to live is Christ. What is your life? What is your life? Is Christ your 
life? Do you find your identity in him? Do you have a gospel-centered worldview that changes not only your eternity, but the way you live day in and day out? You know, such a small percent of the next generation that's in our churches today are grasping the faith, are being established. Because parents, I believe, are working so hard, and preachers are working so hard, and grandparents are working so hard that they want to see their names written in heaven. They want to see their children come to faith in Christ, but when they make a decision for Christ, or when they maybe walk an aisle and shake a preacher's hands and go through the waters of baptism, then the parents are like, okay, they're good. I'm glad they're going to be in heaven. And they never do what Paul talks about in establishing them in the faith so that they know what they believe, why they believe it, they know how to defend it, and they know how to take a stand. And and they get into the Word, and they develop a Christian worldview, a biblical-informed worldview, a Christ-centered worldview, so that Christ becomes their life. And so after a couple of generations of that, then we totally lose a generation because we didn't know why we believed what we believe, and we weren't established in it. And so Paul wants to see those who are followers of Christ established in this gospel-centered worldview. Look at the end of chapter 1, by the way. What was his passion? What drove this? Let's get it in context a little bit. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the glorious riches of his inheritance among the saints. Man, know what you've got coming one day. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his vast strength. It's passion and power that we've been talking about that is found in Christ. He demonstrated this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. Remember what we said last week, a gospel without the resurrection of Christ is no gospel. Thank God for the cross. We've got to preach the cross. Salvation comes through the cross, but a cross, a message of a cross without a resurrection only makes Jesus a martyr, not a savior. So we need to live according to the fact that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's been seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. We see that in verse 20. We're going to see again our place with him there in chapter 2, far above every ruler and, and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, as Paul would tell the Philippian church, that he was given a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body. We are, that's our identity now, the body of Christ the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Christ identified with us when he was on that cross, becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ identified with us there so that in his resurrection, now we can identify with him, as we'll see here in chapter 2, and now he is making his identity known in this world through us as we learn to identify with him in the death and the resurrection. What does that have to do with this passage? What does that have to do with Ephesians chapter 2 and and the gospel-centered worldview? Well, a worldview helps you answer the most difficult questions that people can throw at you. I mean, there are questions that we have because we live in this world. There are questions that the people you work with have. There are people 
that live around you that are asking these questions. There are people, young people, listen, you are in school with people that are asking these questions, and we need answers to these questions. A gospel-centered worldview gives you the most not only accurate, but true answers, the only true answers to these questions. And so if you have a gospel-centered worldview, you're well-equipped to answer these tough questions, these difficult questions, these theological and philosophical questions that are put so simply in your life. The world at the same time is saying the gospel is not relevant And while they're saying the gospel is not relevant, we know that it's the only answer to these questions. So what are the questions this morning? I'm going to give you three of them, and we're going to see how the text answers these questions. Now, here's the first question I bet you've asked over the past week or so, especially over the things that have happened in our country over the past several months. But what's the problem with people? Have you asked that lately? Like every time I drive down the highway, right? What is the problem with people. How do we answer that? The world is asking that question. Man, what is wrong with people? Maybe they look at you and ask, what is wrong with you? You might have asked your spouse that this past week. In a world where we see hatred, war, selfishness, perversions, all kinds of evil, the secular humanists today are all of a sudden having a problem that they didn't anticipate. You know what, secular humanism says basically humanity has all the answers, and we're just going to get better as we become smarter, right? As we become more intelligent, then people are going to become better, and we're going to treat each other better, and instead, we're just using the intelligence to invent more clever ways to hurt more people. Intelligence and secular humanism is not saving our world, it's making it worse, We become more intelligently informed terrorists. The fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world today is human sex trafficking. 21 million adults and children, many of them children, are being sexually exploited today in this fastest growing, fastest growing criminal enterprise. And it's right here in our own state, it permeates our nation, and it's all over our world. What is wrong with people? You may say, well, you're kind of talking about the big sins, and I'm not really interacting with those folks every day. Listen, you ask, when somebody's mean to you, you're going, what's wrong with people? When when somebody treats you unfairly, when, when somebody betrays you, when you find out, you know, folks will cuss you in a heartbeat. You ask, what is, what's wrong with people? When there's so much gender dysphoria that when you walk downtown of any city in America today, you're going, what is wrong with people? We have the answer to that. The answer is found in the first three verses. It is called the depravity of the human soul. The depravity of the human soul, that's what's wrong with people. <laughs> We are a sin-fallen people living in a sin-fallen world, and our souls are depraved. We see three reminders here within this text of, of what's wrong with the soul. It's a problem of nature, first of all, because as we read a moment ago, you were dead in trespasses and sins. 
in which you previously walked according to the worldly age. You were dead. You were born spiritually dead. Ever since Adam and Eve took of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, every human being has been, as David would remind us in Psalm 51 after his sin with Bathsheba, he says, I was conceived in iniquity. From the moment of my conception, I was a sinner by nature. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And we are born sinners by nature. But see, nature soon moves into nurture. What does he say in the text? Not only were you dead, but you walked in it according to the worldly age. Look at how verse 2 continues. This worldly age, according to the ruler of the atmospheric domain. Who is that? That's the devil. So now we've moved from nature to nurture to our nemesis, the devil himself. Nature, dead, depraved. You were a sinner by nature from the moment of conception. Nurture, subject to the passions of this world. And then you have the enemy, the devil himself, who tries to capitalize on the fact that you've got a problem with your nature and he's got this worldly system and he is the prince of the power of the air today and he is seizing the opportunity to exploit your nature and the nurture around you. And folks, the devil is real and the demonic realm, it seems to be busier than ever. Let me remind you, Romans 12, 12 says that the devil was filled with fury because he knows his time is short. So if In the first century, as the church was being established across the known world at that time, if the devil knew his time was short then, how much more so does he know his time is short today? He knows his days are numbered. And so we're going to see human atrocities like we've never seen before. Because it's in the nature of man, it's in the nurture that comes from living in this world, and now the devil himself is exploiting that. And we can pass all of the laws, we can make all the amendments and come up with every rule and regulation, but when our world doesn't understand something that we understand, then they need us to communicate it. The answer is the depravity of the human heart. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. So all the laws, you take away their guns, they'll find another way to hurt people. It's the depravity of the heart. And no one, it's not politically correct, but no one wants to acknowledge what the real problem is, the depravity of the soul. Ephesians 2, verse 3, we read, it kind of ties it all together. We see how the human depravity, the, the nature, we see how the nurture of this world, we see how the devil is working. He says, we too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh. In other words, we had no power to do otherwise apart from God. No power to do otherwise apart from the gospel. Now, while I talk about the depravity of the human soul, I'm not asking you, church, to go to war against people. Our war is not against flesh and blood. And sometimes it bothers me that rather than getting on our knees and attacking the forces of darkness 
And rather than committing ourselves to missions and evangelism and sharing the gospel with our friends and neighbors, we draw swords with lost people and we get mad at people for doing what they can't help but do. It's their nature. It's their nurture. It's the devil who's got a stronghold in their life and we're called to rescue them, not bury them. And so we've got to be busy communicating that the problem of the heart uh, is the true heart of the problem. That they've got something calling them. But there's another voice calling them we'll see here in just a moment. Now, there was a favorite book that I read. I mean, when I was in middle school, I was like any middle school boy. I didn't want to read books. But I read the book, The Call of the Wild, to do a book report. Anybody read The Call of the Wild? Jack London's Call of the Wild. You know, if you can't get a boy to read, let him read that book, man. That was an engaging book for a boy. But, you know, this... this this dog that was part St. Bernard, part maybe some kind of husky. His name was Buck. I do remember that much. But this dog is kind of in a rich neighborhood, belongs to a judge, and, and the, the Southern California area gets stolen and then gets caught up in, and this is going back 120 years ago, but gets caught up in the Yukon Territory where sled dogs were important. And all along, you know, Buck has been mistreated, and he's been abused, and now he, his, his strength is starting to come out, and he becomes this champion sled dog. But then he, he, he gets free from those who had kind of enslaved him, but comes across this pack of wolves, remember, and he, and he wants to be a part of that. And you hear within, uh, you know, as a young boy, you're trying to think like this dog is thinking. And there's this call of the wild, and he wants to go out and, and, and be one of the, the wolves. And even when he kind of returns to a scene where humans have killed each other, you kind of read through the eyes of a dog as you're reading the book that, that man, the humans are no better than me. I'm, I'm out for blood, and they're out for blood too. And so at the, the, the story ends, I don't want to give it away, but he answers the, the call of the wild. See, it was, it was the nurture, but deep down inside, there was something else. In the book, you read these words, parts of his nature deeper than he. He was given into parts of his nature deeper than he, going back to the womb of time. And so there is a sin-fallen nature within every one of us. And yes, this world nurtures it, yes, the devil himself tries to exploit it, but there's something within all of us that wants to be lost in our sins and free to live as sinful as we possibly can. The nature is evident. The nurture, and if you're reading Jack London's Call of the Wild, you see those who exploited that situation in the life of this dog and abused the dog, and that's what the devil wants to do in your life. You and me created in the image of God, and listen, Let's not, when we talk about total depravity, let's not do as, as perhaps some of my friends have been guilty of doing and do away with the fact that we are still created in the image of God. The same David who wrote that I was conceived in iniquity also said I am fearfully and wonderfully made, so we are still created in the image of God. But listen, total depravity means that that, that image is so badly marred that image of God is so badly mangled that it's no longer recognizable and we can do absolutely nothing about it to save ourselves. It is lost. 
and we are lost without hope until we get to these next two words which answer the next question. We've answered what's wrong with people, the depravity of the soul. But where is the power of God in all of this? You ever have anybody ask you that? If God is so loving and so powerful, then why doesn't he do something about it? And the answer is simple. He did. He did do something about it. But God, what did God do? See, the answer is he displays his power in changing lives. Why does he do something if he's all-loving, all-powerful? He did. He did. Look back at verse 4. But God, who is abundant in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, he is abundant in mercy. Mercy means that he didn't give us what we deserved. He held back. We deserved as children of wrath because of our sins, all of hell for all of eternity needed to be poured out on us. But because of his great love, because of his mercy, he withheld that. Not only did he withhold that because it wouldn't be just to merely withhold it, it had to be poured out or God would not be just, but it was poured out on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrated his love, Romans 5, 8, in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so because of his great mercy, because of the love which he loved us with, he did something. Jesus went to a cross for you and for me. And in so doing, when he rose again, what did he do for us? As he identified with us, when we find our identity in him, look at verse 5. He made us alive. We didn't decide to turn over and you leave. We didn't decide, I'm going to get religion. He made us alive with Christ. My identity is in him because he identified with me, even though we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive. The fact that Jesus Christ made us alive when we were dead in our trespasses and sin is as great a miracle as his own resurrection because he was holy. We were not. We were made holy in him. And your being spiritually raised to life is as great a miracle as the world could ever see. That's where the power of God is displayed. In making you alive in him. Listen, I love to see the power of God at work. We have seen God heal people. We have seen God deliver people. We have seen God restore relationships. And in all of that, in all of that, we see the power of God displayed. But the greatest display of the power of God is not that one day you were able to walk out of a hospital The greatest display of the power of God is that perhaps somebody was able to walk out of a bar, that somebody was able to walk into a church and say, the Lord has saved my soul. That's the greatest display of the power of God, when you pass from death unto life spiritually. And then we are now positioned, look at verse 6, we are positioned in Christ. He raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavens, in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. The heavens, that place of security. That place where in your spirit you are already there. 
I remember being a kid, one of the most exciting places to go. Now, granted, if I understood what heaven was all about, heaven would have been uh, my favorite destination for one day, right? But as a kid, I I couldn't really think past, when it came to infinite understanding of things, I couldn't think past Six Flags. I mean, Six Flags over Georgia, that was about as good as it got for a kid. And I didn't go to Disney, so maybe, you know, some of you won up to me there or something. I don't know, but... um, but Six Flags, man, I just couldn't fathom anything better. I remember being an eight-year-old staying over at my cousin's house because we were all going to Six Flags on the next day, and I couldn't sleep that night. As I laid there, I was already on the rides. I was already driving one of those little old cars around. I was already on the screen machine. My heart and my mind, I was already there. And, and, and I was just filled with so much excitement. Listen, the excitement that we have, that we have already been positioned in Christ in the heavenlies, should govern how we live this life with such passion and enthusiasm that no matter how difficult the situation is, no matter what might cause us to lose sleep, we're joyfully rejoicing that we are already there. In Christ, we are already there. And we're living this life with that same joy and that same passion. That's where the passion is. That's where the power is, that our security is in Christ and he has now given us that heavenly authority as he was seated, chapter 1, in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. Now we are seated in him, living this life, allowing him to manifest himself through us. Listen to what Romans 8.11 says. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now, next week, I can't wait to get into this. Next week, we're going to talk about something that Baptists used to not like to talk about, and that is the Spirit-filled life. Because as we identify with Him in His death and His resurrection, we do so by living it out practically, and that is called the Spirit-filled life. And so we're going to crack that open a little bit next week in Romans chapter 6. But for right now, as we look at this passage, I want you to leave here today understanding that Jesus did not come just to make sick people well. He came to make dead people alive. That's probably why Baptist preachers should be more excited that God called them to the denomination he's called them to. Is because the dead in Christ will rise first, right? And so we need to be raised to life spiritually, born anew in Christ. In Ezekiel 37, remember his hopeless situation? He's called to preach to a valley of dry bones. He wasn't looking at a a lot of sick Israelites. What was God saying? He was saying, Ezekiel, Israel is spiritually dead. Spiritually dead, and they need to be brought to life. The good news about the depravity of the soul is that we have the answer. We have the answer. It's the gospel-centered worldview that informs it, and that is that but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, made us alive in Christ. That's where the power of God is. So when somebody says, if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then why doesn't he do something? Point them to the cross of Jesus Christ. Point them to an empty grave and simply say, he did. He did. What is your response to what he did? And then finally, here's a question people are asking. What is my purpose in life then? Why am I here? 
Why did God leave me in this world after he saved me? Or why did he place me here to begin with? Here's the answer. He's called you to a life of devotion to glorifying God. You now live to the glory of God. You know these verses. Verse 8, 9, 10, for by grace are you saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. God's doing it. God gets all the glory. He initiates this whole process. He came to seek and to save the lost. Not from works. We're not saved by being good enough. Listen, if, if the Mormon church can be so motivated to get their message out that you can be good enough to earn your way to heaven, how much more should we be motivated when we understand the gospel of grace, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to let people know the good news? He says it's, it's not by works or what. We, we would brag about it. We, we would brag about it. I've got some buddies that I'm praying for that are lost, and I want them to encounter the grace of God. This past Wednesday night, Pastor Terry challenged the men in our Bible study. Let's get some names down that we're going to pray for, for lost people in our lives. If we could earn our salvation, if we could be good enough to earn our way to heaven, I could go up to those buddies and say, well, fellas, you know what? I've got what it takes and you don't. I guess I'm in. But we can't earn our salvation. I'm saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that same salvation is available for them. It's not that we can brag. We're his workmanship. We are trophies of his grace. We're created in Christ, and then salvation recreated in Christ, right, for good works, which he called us to walk in. If I were to get a phone call, from some kind of extreme makeover group. And they were to say, Pastor Robbie, we've been noticing something at Trinity Baptist Church, and that is the men are all kind of ugly. Now, they all married up. The women, you know, they look great, but, but the men are really kind of ugly. And we've assembled, assembled a, make, a makeup artist and, and a, make, a makeover team, plastic surgeons, you name it. We've got a team together. And uh, we want to do such a work because here's the thing is we want our name to get out and, and the best place we could find to show how good our work is, is with the men of Trinity Baptist Church. None of the ladies are amen and that's good. Um, hypothetically speaking, right? And, and the result of that, and let's say all of a sudden we, we look like we may have been attractive to our attractive to our wives. They were attracted to us, and, and they did this wonderful work. And we walk around saying, hey, baby, ain't I good looking? I'm all that. You don't really deserve all this. Now, not that any of the men would respond that way. Then the ones who came in and did the makeover, the ones who came in and did the surgery, the ones who came in and changed our looks, wouldn't get all the credit, wouldn't get all the glory, and deep down inside we'd know, man, I was pretty ugly until they got hold of me. Spiritually speaking, spiritually speaking, you didn't just need a makeover. (laughs) You didn't just need surgery. You needed a resurrection. 
We were dead. We were ugly in our trespasses and sins. And so when he does a work in our life, it's not so we can go about bragging about how spiritual we are, nor should we talk down to those who are outside the faith. It's only by the grace of God that we are what we are. And he does it so that he might receive glory in our lives. 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. The fragrance of the knowledge of Christ should emanate emanate through our lives so that people know what a wonderful God we serve. We were on vacation this summer and getting ready to do a little boat tour down the Indian River, was it in Florida? (laughs) Tina's like, I don't know. We're getting ready to do this little boat tour and, and, and so... We're, we're, we're sitting and waiting, and then another family comes and joins us. And, and they were a family that we just immediately knew. Tina and I began to whisper, these, these are Christians. Man, just the, the way they spoke to one another, how pleasant, how sweet-spirited, and, and, and the, the love, joy, peace, patience, all the fruit of the Spirit just emanated. And so Tina just asked them, right? She goes, y'all are Christians, aren't you? And they were like, yeah, we are. And we actually pray that the fragrance of Christ would emanate from our life. So thank you for asking if, if we were Christians. This passage here, this triumphal procession, means that, that we're on display as trophies of God's grace. Not to say look at who we are, but look at who he is. We are trophies of God's grace. Why is it so important to preach the gospel message of salvation? It's the only answer for the depravity of the soul. That Christ died for our sins. According to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and we have to find our identity in him. Why is it so important? Why is it so important to follow the Lord in believers' baptism, as as we see in the Scriptures next week? That is our public identity with Christ. It's to say, I have been crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. We were buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. And so some of you have made a decision to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, need to follow the Lord now in believers' baptism. Why is it so important to be a member of a local church? Because now we are now members of his body, it said. We're members of one another, members of Christ and we're serving him as trophies of grace to impact as many people as we possibly can. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?